0: author, theologian, and scripture scholar John Dominic Crossan is widely recognized as the foremost historical Jesus scholar of our time. Born in 1934 in County Tipperary, Ireland, Dr. Crossan attended Unan's College in Letterkenny, County Donegal, where all classes were taught in Gaelic. In 1950, he entered the monastic order of Servites, joining a community of friars in the American province near Chicago. After six years of study in their seminary, he was ordained a priest and served in that role until 1969 when he left the priesthood. He received a Doctor of Divinity degree at Maynooth College in Ireland and continued his studies at the Biblical Institute in Rome and at the Ecole Biblique the School of Archaeology in East Jerusalem. He is co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, launched in 1985 to achieve a scholarly consensus on the historical authenticity of the sayings and events attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. And he's a former chair of the Historical Jesus section of the Society of Biblical Literature. Dr. Crossan is the author of 20 books, including Jesus, A Revolutionary Biography, and The Birth of Christianity. His latest book, God and Empire, Jesus Against Rome Then and Now, explores the scriptural themes of empire and power and draws parallels between first century Rome and 21st century America. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum John Dominic Crossan.
1: It is a great pleasure and a profound honor to be part of this magnificent series in this magnificent church. My subject today is the book that Tim just referred to, God and Empire Jesus Against Rome Then and Now. I want to take you on a guided tour through its five chapters. Beginning with that subtitle, Then and Now, by then I mean the Roman Empire in the first century, which legally, publicly, officially executed Jesus, thereby telling us three things about him. First, that he was lower class. They did not execute aristocrats. It might give people ideas. He was also a revolutionary. He was also nonviolent. Violent Violent revolutionaries, they grabbed the leaders and all the followers they could find. Nonviolent revolutionaries, they crucified the leader as a warning. So that's the then, the now, the now. During the last few years, I've been reading articles and books that say, sadly if by liberals, gladly if by conservatives, that we are an empire, and in fact, that we are the new Roman empire, that Rome on the Tiber has morphed into Rome on the Potomac. I didn't say it. I just heard it said by others. (laughs) It did make me wonder, however, as a Christian, If the old Roman Empire had crucified my Lord, how was I going to live as a Christian in the new one? The title of the book, God and Empire. Is God against empire, of course? If you read through the Bible, you finally get it after a while. God's against the Egyptian empire. He's against the Assyrian empire. He's against the Persian empire, the Median empire, the Macedonian. After a while, you say, I got it. I got it. You are against empire. But why? Why? Is the point that God wants a, let us say, a Christian empire? Or an Irish empire, maybe? (laughs) What exactly is the problem? If empire is, by definition, unjust, since it means one people, or nation, using other peoples and nations in their own best interests, and it is, of course, protected, supported, and empowered by violence, is God against injustice, Or is God against violence? So the fundamental question of my book really is this. Is God violent? And by God, I mean the God of the Christian Bible. And by the Christian Bible, I mean the entire text from Genesis through the apocalypse. Is God violent? My first chapter begins, actually, in the Mesopotamian plains. It has nothing to do with today And it has everything to do with today, of course. Because I'm beginning 6,000 years ago, when on those Mesopotamian plains, not uniquely, but archetypically, civilization was invented. We call Mesopotamia, Iraq, the cradle of civilization. And rightly so, because it was there that the Neolithic Revolution took place, and that the Sumerians were the first people who were able to go through it and think about it and we have the records of their thoughts. So I'm starting there with the cradle of civilization, with the invention of civilization in Mesopotamia. And it is, by the way, also the graveyard of empires. So I'm starting with the Neolithic Revolution, which meant people learned how to domesticate animals, domesticate grains, and domesticate people. In the alluvial floodplains of those great rivers, and the same was happening in the Nile and other places, along those alluvial floodplains, farming and irrigation was invented, and what we call civilization with it. And over the the cradle of civilization hovered the specter of empire. Because when you want to protect the home, uh, sorry, I was going to say the homeland, I mean the farmland. When you want to protect the farmland, where, how far out must your frontiers go? till you feel safe? You invent empire because you cannot move on. It's not you invent violence. What you invented with the Neolithic Revolution is what I'm going to call and hyphenate escalatory violence. Escalatory violence. Where will you ever feel safe with frontiers where your population is expanding with irrigation and food, and others are looking over that frontier and saying, hmm, if we can just wait till they call harvest, we can go in and get it for free. How far must your frontiers extend for security? All of that is the subject of the first century. You can read it in the first chapter of my book. If you want to read it even more succinctly and freely, I suppose, look at your Bible, chapter 4. Look at your Bible, chapter four. You will find there, and it's straight out of the Sumerians thinking about the same things, that the first thing that happens out of Eden is that the farmer kills the herder and builds a city. And as you go through that book, from Cain and Abel through seven times anyone who kills Cain, to Lamech, who says 70 times 7 for anyone who kills me, you watch violence escalating. Read the fourth chapter of Genesis and read our destiny and weep. My second chapter takes it into the Bible and asks a very, very simple question. Is the Bible the good book and all that bad stuff is out there? Or does the struggle take place within the Bible itself? And that's going to be my claim in that second chapter. What we have in the Bible from beginning to end is two visions of God struggling with one another. Two visions of God, two irreconcilable visions of God struggling with one another. One I call the radicality of God. The other I call the normalcy of civilization. If God, for example, announces distributive justice, pretty soon we have God announcing punitive, retributive justice. Is God about nonviolent justice or violent justice? You can read it, for example, look at the book of Leviticus, a book that all Christians read regularly, of course, <laughs> and you will find God announcing, the land belongs to me. You are all tenant farmers and resident aliens. You are all tenant farmers and resident aliens on an earth that does not belong to any one of us. But then if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, you find that God punishes you. If you disobey the Lord your God, these awful things will happen to you. Is God violent and punitive? Wait a minute. The people we're talking about live in the most dangerous piece of real estate in the whole world. They live on the hinge of empire. They live between Asia, Europe, and Africa. They live in the cockpit of empire. When it's north-south between Mesopotamia and the Nile, little Israel is smack in the middle. Shift to an east-west axis of, I was going to say axis of evil, axis of empire. (laughs) Same thing, actually. The, when that happens, they're right in the middle again. The truth is, Deuteronomy tells you you're being punished for your sins. And the truth is, if you had spent your life on your knees, you still would have died, except you would have died on your knees. You're in a dangerous place. And it is a crime against the Holy Spirit to say that invasion in that situation is a punishment for your sins. You might as well tell the Irish that rain is a punishment from God for their sins. And then not be surprised, of course, when they spend most of the Bible crying out for forgiveness and mercy Is God punitive? Is God violent? Which God are we dealing with? The God of nonviolent distributive justice, who is there, by the way, but also the God of violent and punitive justice. They're both in the Bible. So how do you decide between them? And don't say, well, the bad God is in the Old Testament and the good God is in the New Testament. That won't work. If you make the mistake of reading either of them. (laughs) As long as you don't read the text, you can get away with a lot of things. (laughs) My, My radical new suggestion is when in doubt, read the text. And neither will we get away with a biography of God when God finally grows up. We have two visions clashing with one another. How do you decide between them? That brings me to my third chapter, which is a central chapter of the book quite deliberately. It is about Jesus, because for Christians, looking at the Christian Bible, the answer to which God, which God do you choose, the violent God or the nonviolent God, should be very clear. Which God do you find incarnate in Jesus? If you find the violent God there, then that is the God you would go with as a Christian. If you find a nonviolent God, then that is the God you go with as a Christian. So the central chapter is Jesus. And Jesus is then, for me as a Christian, and I would hope for all Christians, the norm of the book, the criterion of the book. I'm thinking as I speak of those magnificent images in Eastern. Christianity, where Jesus is shown, his hands are raised in the teaching gesture, three fingers and two fingers. Looks a little bit like the Boy Scout salute, but actually it's three fingers for the persons in the Trinity, two fingers for the two natures in Christ. And he's always holding a book. Call it the Pantocrator, the all-powerful one, at a time, of course, when the emperor was called the self-powerful one, autocrat. He's not reading that book. You never find it open and Jesus reading it to try and find out what's going on. The book is always closed, in fact clasped shut. He doesn't, and if it's open, it's open towards you to read it. Jesus is the norm of the book. So what about this Jesus? Let me make three points about Jesus. And I'm going to do it in very delicate and maybe even dangerous dialectic with John the Baptist, and please don't hear this as any denigrate, denigration of a martyr like John. But I'm thinking that Jesus learned from what happened to John. He started as John's disciple, and he learned from what happened, because John said that God is coming, and what came was Antipas's cavalry. And John died, and God did nothing. And I think Jesus watched and learned. John had said, Any day now, the avenging God is coming to clean up the mess of the world. Think of it as the great divine cleanup. The fancy theological word is eschatological. It's the image of a God who's going to clean up the injustice, the violence, the warfare of the earth, and make here on earth, it's not about the end of the world, it's about the end of evil. And John said, any day now, God's going to come to do it. And John also said that this is the avenging God, the God with the ax laid to the root of the tree. This is the God who's gonna burn the chaff with fire. And a third thing John did was let everything, everything focus on himself. He was the baptizer. There weren't little baptizing stations all up and down the Jordan, and you just went to the one closest to your home for your convenience. You went to John which meant that once Antipas executed John, the movement was dead, over, finished. Jesus watched, I think, and learned. He announced not not that the great divine cleanup was coming any day now. He said it had already begun. And the problem was that, talking to his audience, you are waiting for God, and God's been waiting for you. No wonder nothing's happening. He said we are called to collaborate with God in the great divine cleanup of the world. He also said, too, this God is not violent. This is a God, he said, who sends the rain on the just and the unjust, which most of us in the secrecy of our own heart know is not just. (laughs) The just should get all the rain, gently, and the others should get the drought. We know that. So this is a very weird God, not violent. And the final most important thing that Jesus did, having learned from John again, I'll put it in an aphorism for our memory. John had a monopoly, but Jesus had a franchise. (laughs) Jesus told his companions. I'm not even going to call them disciples, because that means students. He told his companions, just go do it. He actually was the first who said, just do it. (laughs) Go do what I am doing. Just go do it. He didn't settle down at Nazareth or Capernaum and say, bring everyone to me. I'm it. He said, the kingdom is here. Just go join it. Final vision for Jesus. Going back to what I said before at the beginning. The most important commentator on Jesus in the New Testament is Pilate, who got it from his point of view precisely correct. And if you look at that great parabolic interchange in John's Gospel, I don't think it's history, but it is magnificent and accurate parable, and therefore is true. Jesus and Pilate meet one another, and Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom, God's kingdom, is not of this world. Because if it were of this world, my companions would be in here fighting to get me out. Couldn't be clearer. The difference between us, Pilate, is that you and your kingdom of Rome is based on violence, and my God's kingdom is not. Paul, my fourth chapter. What I'm insisting on there is that Paul is not the one who betrayed Jesus and invented Christianity, or any of the other libels that have become customary to hang on poor Paul. There are really three Pauls. This is the difficulty. Of the 13 letters attributed to Paul, seven, seven definitely come from Paul: Romans, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon and First Thessalonians. There's a massive consensus of scholarship on that. Another three, Colossians, Ephesians, Second Thessalonians, probably not from Paul. And the third three, Triad, First and Second Timothy, Titus, certainly not from Paul. That's a general consensus. And a general consensus of scholarship is called a miracle, by the way. (laughs) Now, the interesting thing is not that after Paul was dead, people wrote letters in his name, nothing particularly surprising that in early Christianity. The really surprising thing is this, that those post-Pauline letters become progressively anti-Pauline. So we're now looking back again in terms of Paul at something we glimpsed already when we were looking at the Bible in in chapter 2. Relentlessly through the Bible, we saw the radicality of God is both announced and muted. We are so clever. We announce it and then we figure out how to gut it. It's as if, you know, when the Bible says all the land belongs to me, okay then, hmm, since civilization is about keeping mine and getting yours, how do I get your land if I can't buy and sell it, if it's off the market? Hmm, ah, what about loans and foreclosures? We are so clever. So what we have with Paul is in those authentic letters, Paul insists that inside the Christian community, whether you come in as a Christian, excuse me, as a pagan Christian or a Jewish Christian, a male or a female Christian, a slave or a free, you are equal in the Christian community. You cannot be equal in Christ and unequal at the same time. That's radical stuff. Unless it's a dreamy sort of, you know, like our, say, Pledge of Allegiance that talks about liberty and justice for all and has no intention of doing it. If, however, you really mean it, then that's radical stuff. And you can see the test case if you read the letter to Philemon, in which Paul has the supreme test case. Can a Christian master have a Christian slave? There you got it. And Paul tortures himself in a way because he wants Philemon to free him freely. He wants to tell him, do your duty. But he says, rather than telling you how to do your duty, I appeal to you out of love. It's a masterpiece of persuasion on the delicate cusp of manipulation. Read it. Read it. (laughs) All teenagers know how to do this intuitively, but as adults, we sometimes forget it. Read Philemon, but the principle is clear. A Christian master cannot have a Christian slave. Now, if you read that in Philemon, where it's quite clear, and then move, for example, into Colossians and Ephesians. You have not so much the radical Paul, but you have a sort of a liberal Paul. Liberal because he takes it for granted there will be slaves and masters within the Christian community, but he addresses them both. He addresses slaves directly, tells them, of course, to be obedient, tells their masters to be kind. But by the time you get to the epistle of Titus, He speaks directly to masters and tells them how to handle their slaves. Slaves are not addressed. You can do exactly the same process, and I do it in the book, in terms of patriarchy. The radical Paul is changed into the liberal Paul and into the conservative Paul before your eyes. And we should not be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. That is a process that goes on through the Bible. It is in fact the integrity of the Bible. It really is. If it was all about a beautiful world when everything is peaceful, we wouldn't believe it. It would be like Disney World set to text. Inspired Disney World, but still not a place you could live. Nice to visit possibly, but not to live. And if it was all about brutality and a God who is violent, we wouldn't need it. We can do that fine by ourselves. The integrity of the Bible is: we keep getting this vision of a radical God who demands justice and equality, and is not, by the way, thinking in terms of democracy or civil rights. Or in, that's not there. What is there is the imagination of God as a father, patriarchal to be sure, but in that world, in that world, the primary purpose of a father, of a father, was not to boss the women around. The primary purpose of a father was to run a good household. Are the kids fed, clothed? Does everyone get enough? So when you imagine this world of God that Jesus imagines and that Paul, they ask a very simple question. If you came to visit this world and looked around, would you say, well, run? Everyone's getting enough. Good job. You go, God. Or would you say, ouch? Ouch! Would you hallow the name of God? Or would you say, not doing too good here. That's their vision. My final chapter. Now remember, by the time you get to the apocalypse, you've been watching a process of sanitization, of muting this radical voice. So you already know, you already expect you should... You should be waiting for it. If Jesus walk, excuse me, if Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and maybe even on a female donkey, you know, a nursing donkey with a little colt trotting along at her side, not on a war horse, not on a mule, not on a male donkey, on a female donkey, as an absolute lampoon of a Roman conqueror entering the city, how are we going to get back? To a violent Jesus. This radical stuff from God is all fine to admit, but let's not, let's not have too much of it. So by the time you get to the apocalypse, you should be ready for what happens there. We want a second coming. We want Jesus to come back and get it right. Get that other cheek stuff and donkey stuff and all the rest of it out of your system and come back like we are violent. Read the Apocalypse. Don't ignore it. Don't get it out of the Bible. Read it and weep. In all of my years teaching world literature, world religious literature, I know of no book as violent, as relentlessly, consistently, virulently violent. There's bad bits everywhere. But I'm talking about a relentlessly violent book in which God is violent. And Jesus is violent. And not only is it violent, it is engendered. It is gendered. It is the lamb male against the whore. Yes, it is against the Roman Empire. But it uses the the violence of God against the violence of Rome. We simply have two contending violence. And by the way, that does create some problems. Why is it so violent? Why is it gendered violence? The Jewish apocalyptic writer who wrote after the destruction of Jerusalem, when you really could think, surely a a homeland Jew could be allowed some violence, has it simply as the lion against the eagle. It's not gendered. It's not male against female. So this is a book we have to really, really look at terribly carefully. It is violent. It is engendered. But recently, we have added something to the apocalypse. You can explain the apocalypse as our last desperate attempt to get back a violent God and a violent Jesus, on our sides, of course, not on anyone else's side. It's the last attempt and maybe the most successful to de-radicalize the God and the Jesus of the Bible. But but, in the last century, first of all, with C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, and then with the Left Behind series, we added something new, namely that when this violent God returns with a violent Jesus, there will be Christians who will participate in it. That is not in the book of the Apocalypse. It never got that far. And you remember, if you've seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, once again, it's male, female, the lion against the witch. And the witch is a beautiful woman. I don't know what that does to the imagination of young girls and boys. Here's the final question, then. Is Jesus coming back soon? No, we've been wrong on that for 2,000 years. Is Jesus coming back violently? In the name of God, no. Is the Second Coming what would happen if we Christians ever took the First Coming seriously? Let me conclude before I open it for questions. I'm not certain whether this should be taken as a theological suggestion for our meditation or a political suggestion for our next election. But throughout the New Testament, it says over at least a half dozen times that Jesus is seated at the right hand or standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is at the right hand of God. Presumably, all Christians believe that. But if Jesus is to the right of God, then God is to the left of Jesus. (laughs) If then you wish to find God, it's quite clear what to do. First find Jesus and keep going left.
0: Religious scholar and former Catholic priest John Dominic Crossan, author of God and Empire, speaking last week at the Westminster Town Hall Forum in downtown Minneapolis. Now, uh, Crossan also took some questions. That session moderated by Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Do you believe that power, by its very nature, is violent? if not can you give us give us an illustration of when it has been exercised as nonviolent
1: in answer to the question no power the <laughs> chapter title of my second book is the bible and the ambiguity of power power is violent or nonviolent there are two modes of power power can be violent that is using force power can be nonviolent using persuasion What I was doing this morning, in a way, is an exercise of power. I'm trying to persuade you about something. I'm not trying to force you. I lay out my evidence, and then you must decide. Power can be either violent or nonviolent. The presumption that it has to be violent is the great delusion that endangers our humanity at the moment.
0: Are there any examples in history where empires have ruled out of a non-violent position or where they have voluntarily given, given up their power?
1: I know of no case where an empire has ever voluntarily given up its power. And quite often, the homeland of the empire does quite well afterwards. It's on the periphery that the horrors take place.
0: How should we teach the story of the competing gods to which you refer? the story of the competing gods of the Bible to our
1: children. The principle I use is somewhat akin to the Hippocratic Oath, except I translate it as, first tell no lies. We should tell them the truth. We should let them see, and any kid who's played with toys and watched somebody else plays with toys knows the basic problem of empire. How do I keep mine and take yours? They understand it. Of course. They have no problem understanding it. Just start with their reality and expand.
0: One of our listeners makes this comment. Perhaps God is neither violent nor pacifist, but indifferent. Care to comment on that?
1: The God I've been talking about is the God of the Bible. And there's one thing that I would never use about the God of the Christian Bible is indifference. Whether you find it violent or non-violent, it is certainly not indifferent. What is extraordinary about this book, and I really mean this, is not that it simply mirrors our violence and projects it onto God. That I would find completely expectable. It's the relentless repetition of this radical vision of non-violence and of justice. That I find not only hopeful, because I don't quite know where it comes from. It doesn't seem to come from the surface at least of ourselves. Wherever it comes from, it is precious and has to be guarded.
0: Why are our Christian churches in this country so confused, at least from your perspective, so confused about Jesus, and what can we do about it?
1: The confusion is there. You have the the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, you have the Jesus of the Apocalypse. They are two, as far as I can see, irreconcilable Jesuses. And they are both there. You need then, what I was trying to risk, a theology of the whole Christian Bible. And the theology of the whole Christian Bible, I'm suggesting, is this ongoing struggle between these two visions. And I'm using the term struggle deliberately. I'm avoiding terms like victory especially any martial terms. It may be that it will always be a struggle. I would be quite happy if I was secure that we are breaking even in the struggle, rather than that the violent God is winning hands down. But they're both there, so the only thing I would say, for example, is you can get the left behind out of the Book of the Apocalypse, but you'd have an awful job getting it out of the Sermon on the Mount.
0: I didn't hear you use the word peace once in your remarks, one of our listeners says. Jesus seems to be all about peace at all levels in all aspects of our lives. Could you comment on how Jesus has drifted away from peace as a God of peace and seems to support violence now?
1: And let me reassure you that was simply a matter of compression. Insofar as you look at the, say, the Roman Empire, and I'm taking that as a a typical example of the normalcy of civilization the program that shows up relentlessly in their texts, inscriptions, coins, images, structures, everywhere, is religion, war, violence. I put victory. Religion, war, victory, peace. I'm not being cynical. The peace of the Roman Empire was gained by victory. And I think if you said that to them, they would say, duh, there's another way. We didn't invent this. We just got particularly good at it. The other program, the other vision of that God, I would spell out, religion, nonviolence, justice, and peace. The imperial program is peace through violence, peace through victory. The eschatological program, if you will, the kingdom program is peace through justice. You don't get peace from victory, you get lull until the next time, and then we're back with escalatory violence the next time. Yes, pieces all over the book.
0: How can we emphasize that the Romans and the Roman Empire killed Jesus if we continue to use the Easter texts which imply the complicity of the Jews?
1: The Jewish historian Josephus, end of the first century, said, Our first people, our first men among us, handed him over to Pilate. I think that is precisely correct. What happened, this is actually. Straight out, of course, the last week, Marcus Borg and and my own book. When you read Mark, we're back with the same old thing, when in doubt, read the text. You see quite clearly that Jesus went to Jerusalem to make a double demonstration against imperial power and high priestly collusion with it, and that he expected and was protected by the crowd. It's on Sunday. It's on Monday. It's on Tuesday. It's on Wednesday in Mark's gospel, using our terms. He is protected by the crowd against his own high priestly authorities, who the crowd recognizes he is criticizing, and they probably agree with him. It is because on Wednesday morning, our terms again, in Mark's gospel, they give up on Jesus and say, we can't touch him. It might bring on a riot. Then comes Judas. So if you want to lay out some responsibility, we have three candidates, Pilate, Caiaphas, and Judas, a pagan a Jew and a Christian, if you prefer.
0: Can you speak to the phenomenon of some Christians today sending money to Israel to ensure that Jews will inhabit that land so that Jesus can return?
1: If that was all we were talking about, there would be no problem, if that was all we were talking about. But to use and support the Jewish people as the tripwire of the eschaton so that when they are slaughtered we will know the time has come i find that horrible i find that quite frankly obscene it's like saying women and children front women and children first when you approach a minefield i would not consider if i was a homeland jew and i can imagine myself as such i would not imagine those people being on my side and i can be an irish Imagine what it is like to be a member of a small battered people with a small homeland and a big diaspora. And I think I would say, no, those people are not my friends.
0: How does one explain that this vision of a nonviolent God, which is quite compelling, is not being preached in, in this questioner, Proposes 99% of our U.S. churches present congregation accepted.
1: We are the one percent. Um, part of it is that we would have to, we, we would really have to face that problem of the Bible we're talking about. What to do about the violence of the Bible? And it's not enough simply to ignore it. To, to, it's, it's not honest really to look at all the good parts of the Bible, and there are magnificent parts. It's not good, for example, to go to the very last chapters of the apocalypse and look at that magnificent vision of heaven and earth renewed and the tears wiped from every eyes. How could it seem anything be more beautiful than that? But you look at the slaughter that got you there. So part of it is we have to face text of the entire Bible and have a theology for the entire Bible. Secondly, we have to recognize that if we are living in an empire, there is a huge tension, hopefully a creative tension, hopefully a critical tension between our own politics, our own foreign affairs, our own foreign policy, and our own Christianity. And finally, we may have to face substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus basically went up to Jerusalem to get himself killed, which is suicide by martyrdom. And it would be very easy then and now to get yourself martyred by going and doing certain things to really poke the authorities, to really provoke it. If Jesus went up to Jerusalem to get himself killed, that is what I was opposing by saying the crowd was on his side and that's what he expected to be defended by, then this would be suicide. And to say that God wants that type of death, suicide, is again a crime against divinity.
0: And what do you understand Jesus went up to Jerusalem to do?
1: Jesus went up, let me put it in the most abstract language and you will get the point. (laughs) Jesus went up to the capital city of his people to make a double demonstration against imperial power and conservative religious collaboration with it. Please let me be clear in the first century Jewish homeland, if you divided the groups that were sort of elbowing one another for leadership, the conservative conservative leadership was definitely the Sadducees, the high priests. That's who they were. They were conservative. I'm not using that as an insult. They were conservatives. The liberals were the Pharisees. That's why there's so much tension between the Christians, Christian Jews and Pharisaic Jews. They're too close to one another. They're both part of the liberal medium. They, The radicals, I really think, were the Essenes and the people down at Qumran, sort of maybe the Holy Scrollers, if you could call them that. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Because they have withdrawn from the sacred time calendar and sacred place temple of their people. And once we have really found out about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the people who are living there, I found that all of a sudden, Christian Judaism seemed to have moved away from the left into the center. It was outflanked. So when I say the conservative religious establishment, I am describing the Sadducees. Factually, that's what they were.
0: What are some of the implications of empire for congregational ministry today in the United States for affluent Christians in the US, for poor Christians in the US?
1: I think the first thing we would have to do is very, very sincerely see if any of what I've just said, for example, or what's in God and the empire is true. Go back to your texts. But you will have to, as I said, you will have to make this decision. And it's fundamental. When you read a story, most of us know that, well, the conclusion is where everything gets rounded up. So if you read the Christian Bible, it is perfectly valid. It really is to say, well, the ending there is that God's going to come back and kill all the evildoers. And maybe we should jumpstart the program and get with it. That is not invalid. So the question for us is, is the end of the Bible or the middle of the Bible the norm of the Bible? And I would think most Christians, conservative, liberal, anyone you want, would have always said, I have taken Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, not I've taken the Bible. So it seems to me obvious that the norm of the Bible is Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, also known as the historical Jesus for some people, that that's the norm of the Bible, and that that criticizes, radically criticizes the apocalyptic Jesus, which is our expected attempt to get him back a comfortable Jesus we can live with, just like us, violent. So I think we would have to ask again, where is the heart of the Bible? Is it the incarnate Jesus or the apocalyptic Jesus?
0: We have several questions about uh, life in a multi-faith context. What does the Jesus of the Gospels suggest to us about living together with those of other faiths?
1: I've been quite deliberately talking within, within the, my own Christian tradition, because I, only think, I think it is only when we really get down sort of to the basement of our own tradition and know it very well, that it's safe to talk to other people beyond just simply being polite, which would always be good. But at least, I think every tradition has to ask these fundamental questions that we're asking. Are there stuff in our books, in our traditions, in our hearts, that we don't quite want to see out in public? We have to look at our traditions. We are, first of all, communities, I'm talking about religious communities, who create our traditions, out of which comes our sacred books. It's not the other way around. So we have to ask, where do we as a community, this applies to any community we're talking about, where do we stand today and what is our program for the world? If I was talking, say, with a Muslim, I don't want to argue about the divinity of Christ and the the humanity of, of Muhammad. I want to ask, what can we do for the peace of the world, to use that expression, before it's too late? If violence and justice are in a race, and violence seems to be winning hands down, what can we do before it's too late? Or do we all think we're as doomed as the saber-toothed tiger? And does that bother us? If God's world is being abandoned to the thugs, does that bother us? Those are the questions I would like to ask interfaith dialogue.
0: Pursuing that same line of questioning, how do you interpret the passage in John that no one comes to the Father except through me?
1: I would accept it in two ways. First of all, it is absolutely valid for me within Christianity. I am a Christian. That is where I find my God. I know absolutely with complete clarity that there are other people who find God equally validly in other ways. That is part of the... the Mystery of particularity. It's something we all understand when we can say of our first grandchild, this is the most beautiful child in the world. And we really do not expect people to whip out their image and say, well, actually, no. This. So, So how can all grandparents have the most beautiful child in the world? That is the mystery of particularity. In the same way, when I say, with absolute fidelity. This is the only way for me. I understand that somebody else is saying exactly the same thing differently. And I accept that. That is the particularity of being. It is not simply that it's all relative. And it's not that it's all absolute. It is all particular. So each of us in every religion has to accept that unique particularity, which shows up in all sorts of other ways that we know of and that therefore says, this is the only way for me. Now, having said that, I'm quite willing to say, when I want to talk about, not using Christian language, but talking about justice and peace and nonviolence, I'm quite willing to say, do you find in your tradition something that's saying exactly the same thing? So that maybe beneath all of these traditions, we're seeing visions of the world that are actually saying the same thing.
0: question about the classic Christian teaching of just war. In the view of uh, your perspective, which has God as being nonviolent, which you understand as the God of scriptures, can a Christian embrace a teaching of just war?
1: As far as I can understand, whatever validity just war theory ever had, that's a question, has been invalidated as soon as we had atomic and hydrogen weapons. It no longer becomes possible to even consider it as a just war. I don't even know how the theory applies, even, even when in a modern war we have already decided that it's total war. I don't know how just war even applies anymore, even if it was once available when there was discrete armies who fought with one another and civilians might be protected and all the rest of it. In a just, in the modern world just war is not possible. That does not mean, however, that it's not possible to say that certain wars were unjust and are unjust. That's not the same thing. Whether just war theory has become obsolete does not mean that any given war you can't say, that is unjust. We, we have time for
0: just one more brief question. Are you hopeful about our nation and about the church?
1: Actually, I am tremendously hopeful. And the reason is, and I can't say this without sounding like it is what we call in Latin captatio benevolentiae," playing to the audience, because I find audiences like you all over this country. People who are listening and thinking about this, and that is what is hopeful. If it was just simply me thinking about it, well, I'm just one person. But I find audiences in all denominations across this country asking exactly the same questions. That is profoundly hopeful. And the second thing that is profoundly hopeful for me, of course, speaking now specifically to America, is, for example, I've quoted it before. Let me quote it again. If we ever took the Pledge of Allegiance seriously. We ask our children to pledge themselves liberty and justice for all. And then we want to argue about whether that is under God or not. I mean, that phrase should be in the pledge. Whereas, if we had established liberty and justice for all, if anyone had ever established that in the whole history of the world, they would be under God whether they liked it or not.